in the bulletin. The passage that we're looking at actually is one that begins really in verse 28, the whole section here in Luke. Uh, verse 28 of chapter 19 with Jesus' arrival in the city of Jerusalem. Now, if, you, uh, if we had time to kind of look at that whole section that leads up to this 28 to 44, which we don't, but if we did, what we'd see is that um, in Jesus' triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem, there are at least seven clear indicators in that passage that his actions there are laying a deliberate claim to his rightful position as the promised savior of God's people. And, uh, and so after entering Jerusalem in a, a rather grandiose manner, Jesus goes straight to the temple, which is the passage before us this morning, and it serves really as kind of a, a climax of Jesus' arrival, as well as a further indicator of his identity. And uh, with that as a bit of a background and introduction, let me pray and that we'll read the passage, and then we'll have a look at what it says to us. Let's pray together. (coughs) Father in heaven, please help us to hear and learn good things from your word this morning. As you are the... um, really the only teacher in this room that can uh, affect our hearts in ways that are lasting. And we would ask that you would please do that. That you would use this occasion to write your truth on our hearts. Father, please help us to uh, be attentive, to, um, to not be drawn away, in our hearts and minds uh, to other things that that are always with us, always follow us into the room, uh, but to be able to focus on you. Father, use this time to shape us, make us more like your son. And we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Luke 19, verses 45 to 48. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words." Now, at first glance, it might not seem that there is much of a story here, really. I mean, Jesus makes his grand entrance into Jerusalem. He marches straight up to the temple, uh, the most sacred and special place in the entire city. And he starts driving people out, clearing the temple of buyers and sellers and money changers and animals. Uh, just drives them all out. And, and, of course, you don't get all of these details from Luke, but when you compare this with the parallel passages in Matthew and 21 and in Mark 11... Uh, you get a more filled-in picture of everything that happened on this occasion when he cleared the temple. So Jesus basically throws everybody out on their ear. And uh, after that, he's, after he's cleared the place out, he really basically turns the temple into his own personal headquarters, 
if you will. And the text tells us that he spent his days teaching in the temple and everyone was spellbound, to use the language of the NRSV, by what they heard. Everyone that is, except the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders. They weren't spellbound. They were furious. And they wanted to do away with Jesus. They were obsessed with murderous intent. They were frustrated because they couldn't find a way to pull it off. Not yet, at least. So at first glance, it may not appear that there's a great deal going on apart from Jesus being angry with some people who were using religion to get rich. However, I want to suggest that there is more going on than just that in this passage. In order to see that, we have to take a few minutes to uh, think about this passage within its Old Testament context. And keep in mind that as we do this, we won't be focusing on everything in the passage, but only upon the central image, and that is the temple, the temple, and how it relates to the person of Jesus. First of all, let's think about the whole idea of the temple in the Old Testament. And as you might expect, there's a number of places you could go in order to understand what the role of the temple was in the life of ancient Israel. However, there is one place which I think is particularly helpful, and that is the prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, just by way of reminder, I should probably tell you that long before the temple was built, there was a thing called the tabernacle, which was basically a temporary, mobile, much smaller version or precursor to the temple. The tabernacle was what Israel had during all of their wilderness wanderings, and it was the center of their worship until they came to the promised land. Once they were established in their own land, the temporary tabernacle was replaced by a permanent temple. Which then brings us to this passage, 1 Kings chapter 8, which is the grand opening of the new temple. And one part of this grand opening involves bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the most sacred place in the temple. And when I say Ark, I'm not talking about a boat as in Noah's Ark, but about something else. A friend of mine, an Anglican minister in Australia, said once that as a young Christian, it was a great test of his faith when he first read the Old Testament. He heard about the Israelites carrying this ark around in the wilderness. And in his mind, he pictured these people kind of dragging this tremendous ship through the desert. And he couldn't figure out why they were doing that until somebody pointed out to him that it wasn't a boat that they were dragging. It was a box, and it wasn't really all that big. Uh, But this box was very special and sacred object in ancient Israel. It was the most central place in the tabernacle that they set up. Indeed, inside of it were the stone tablets of Moses, uh, the tablets upon which God himself had written his Ten Commandments. And it's important to remember that the ark was not an idol. I mean, nobody worshipped the ark itself or bowed down to it. It It was a symbol of the presence of God. That's what it symbolized, the throne of God, a focal point for the worship of God. And this ark had accompanied Israel all through the wilderness until 1 Kings 8 is being brought at long last into its permanent resting place in the permanent temple. And 1 Kings 8 tells us in verses 10 and 11 that when the ark was brought into the temple's most holy place, a cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the cloud was a manifestation of God. It was this tangible, visual representation signaling that God was very near, that He was locally 
and especially present in that place, that he was pleased with the temple that they built and was glad for it to be the new symbol of his presence among them. In fact, the text tells us that the presence of God was so strong, the cloud was so dominant that the priests could not perform their service. The glory and presence of God was so overwhelming that at least for a time, it actually shut down the operations of the temple. File that away. We'll come back to that. Now, after the ark is set in place, Solomon, the king of Israel at the time, says some words to the people who are gathered for the occasion, and then he launches into a very long prayer of dedication. And from this prayer, we glean some important information about the temple. For example, verses 27 to 30, we learn that although the temple is a truly magnificent place, Solomon is under no illusions about the limitations of the temple. He says, the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. Right? So Solomon knows that at best, right, at best, the temple is just a symbol of God's presence amongst them. It's not the reality It's a shadow of a greater reality. It's a point of contact. It's an intersection, if you will. It sort of reminds me of the ceiling, the painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel shows this divine figure representing God, extending his finger, touching the grasping, stretching finger of a mere human. And at that place where the two fingertips uh, meet or almost meet, that is something how the temple of God was for the people of Israel. It was where they, through the high priest, came near to God. But at the end of the day, it was still just a building. And Solomon knew that. Verses 31 to 40 and 46 to 51, we learn also that the temple is the place where the people were to go for forgiveness of sins. If they will turn from their sin, turn back to God and pray to Him for forgiveness, they can be pardoned. And along with the prayer for forgiveness of sin was the atonement for sin the shedding of blood through ritual sacrifices made on behalf of the people. And finally, in verses 41 to 43 of 1 Kings 8, we learned that the temple was not to be exclusively, this is key, not to be exclusively for the people of Israel. In fact, it was the place where foreigners would come from far and wide, and they too would join in the praise and worship of God. In other words, the temple was a witness to all the nations that the God of Israel was the God of the entire earth not just ethnic Israel, and that if they would come, they too would be accepted as his people if they turned to him. Now with that kind of background, keep all that in mind, we can begin to understand, I think, why Jesus, when he arrived in town, he went straight to the temple, right? Where else would he go? It's only logical that the Son of God would identify himself with the place that symbolized the presence of God amongst his people. Of course he's going to go to the temple. But when he gets to the temple, he's angered. He's extremely distressed to find out what is going on inside. And of course, Jesus has been distressed many times during his ministry, including very recently as he approached Jerusalem, verse 41 of this chapter, he wept over how lost the people of God were. But now he's even more distressed. What he sees in the temple is added insult to injury. His sadness over the lostness of the people suddenly becomes anger. What is it about this situation that so distresses Jesus? What is it that makes him so angry that he resorts to wild, even violent behavior 
in the temple. The son of God. Acting like a crazy man. Throwing people out. Is it the presence of all these buyers and sellers and money changers trying to make a fast buck out of religion? Certainly, I think that's part of it. You see, the sellers were the people who had to set up a stall, like what you might see at a county fair or an open-air market. And all the stalls were within the courts of the temple on the inside. There was kind of this internal courtyard, and they were there. Because apparently that was the best place, the place where the highest traffic volume and the best potential for sales could be found. Now, as for what they were selling, the main thing would have been animals for sacrifice, right? Doves for really poor people, sheep and cattle for those who were better off. In addition to that, uh, would have been the sales of other things used in making sacrifices, various wines and oils, flour, etc. And then alongside the various sellers' stalls would have been the money changers. Now, the money changers were there because people coming to the temple, particularly the visiting pilgrims, had to pay a temple tax, which went to support the work of the temple and the upkeep of the temple. However, the temple tax could not be paid in Roman money. It had to be paid in Hebrew money, which was kosher. The animals had to be bought and sold with Hebrew money. And so to cater for this, there would be various money changers throughout the temple uh, that scattered around the courtyard, kind of like the currency exchange places that you find in airports, international airports all over the place. And uh, be, because when international visitors arrive in our country, their money's no good here, they've got to change it out for money that is. The same kind of thing was going on in the temple. And the money changers made a good profit out of the whole thing. So, in, in short, these people, uh, you were using religion as a means to personal gain and fortune. Is a very utilitarian approach to the things of God. Knowledge of God was not the goal. Promoting the honor and glory of God did not appear to be a driving motive for these people. It was simply an opportunity that presented itself and they were making the most of it from a human perspective. And I think about these things, I wonder about some versions of Christianity that are espoused uh, in our own day that are like, uh, which, like the sellers and money changers of the temple, seem to have adopted a similar philosophy. God as a means to an end, to another end. Um, good health or happiness or fulfillment. God as a means to help you do what you want to do with your life, irrespective of what God is doing in the world. And as with the sellers and money changers for so many who promote that sort of perspective about God it does not appear that the knowledge and love of God himself is the driving goal or motive something else is and I think we cannot deny that there must be a great appeal mass appeal to this approach thousands and thousands have responded to it but at the end of the day you have to ask the question is it really God that, that people are seeking in that kind of context, within that kind of perspective, is it God himself they are seeking? Will they still praise him when they develop cancer? Will they still praise him when they lose their job? When their 15-year-old runs away from home and they lose touch with him, maybe for years, maybe forever? And I look in the mirror, I wonder about person staring back at me, I wonder if his view of God is not sometimes just like that. I wonder if his life as a Christian is not just like that, approaching God 
as a means to an end that ultimately has nothing to do with His glory. So Jesus comes into the temple and what He sees is not a place where prayer is offered, a place where devotion to God is the central reality. He sees a place of business, a marketplace. And He's angry. And He yells out to them, calling them a den of robbers or thieves, recalling a passage from the prophet Jeremiah chapter 7. A passage which, when read in context, suggests that there is more than one kind of robber. There's the kind of robber that steals money or possessions, and then there's the robber who withholds from God the devotion and honor that is rightfully his. And that's what Jesus sees when he enters the temple. He sees a robbery taking place. On one level, the robbery of one another in the name of religion through the money changers. On another level, the robbery of God by withholding from him the true devotion and honor that he deserves. The robbery that takes place whenever God is used as a means to something else which ultimately is treasured more than God himself. So if Jesus marched into this place and he looked into our lives, looked into our hearts here, what would he see in this room? Would he see a den of thieves? Would he see a room full of devotees? The people were using God to turn a prophet. Is that what Jesus is angry about? I think that's part of it. But there's more. When Jesus entered the temple, he entered the outer courtyard, through the outer courtyard. It was not only what he saw that angered him, it's what he did not see. That angered him. See, New Testament scholars tell us that that area of the temple in which Jesus stood was called the court of the Gentiles. This court was a special area which was reserved for people from other nations, for non-Jews. In fact, it was the only part of the temple in which a non-Jewish person could come and pray. The only part. Scholars also tell us that according to Jewish historical records, it was the high priest Caiaphas, the same priest whom Jesus dealt with, who made the fairly recent innovation of allowing the buyers and sellers to set their stalls up inside the temple. Before they were outside, he let them move into the temple. When he let them move in, he let them move into the court of the Gentiles, basically making it impossible for the Gentiles to come in and have access to the temple. They had no access. It was no longer a place where they could go to pray, express their devotion to God. And that was a great tragedy. It was in direct conflict with one of the main purposes of the temple. Remember Solomon's prayer of dedication. If you've read it before, I mean, just read part of it. First Kings 8, here's what he says. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, when he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven in your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. 
And later on, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 56, has some things to say about the temple and foreigners. He says, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So when Jesus, many years later now, comes into the temple, he enters the courtyard of the temple, not only does he see people using God as a means to an end, he sees the Gentiles being excluded from access to God. He sees no foreigners gathered there to honor and worship and pray to God. He sees the narrow exclusivism of the Jewish leaders who apparently had no concern for anyone outside of Israel. He sees a people who want to limit the plan and purpose of God to the confines of their own geographical and ethnic borders. When Jesus walks into the temple, he sees a closed club. He sees a group that is only concerned about its members and nothing more. He sees a big sign that says... Foreigners not welcome here. Visitors not welcome here. Seekers not welcome in this place. And so he shouts aloud as he drives the people from the temple, quoting Isaiah the prophet, saying, in Mark's account, he says, My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Why does he shout that when he's driving them out of the temple? Because they've cut off the Gentiles from access to God. What is it that so angered Jesus that day? It was the exclusivism. It was the hard-heartedness. It was the unwillingness to receive and welcome and make a place for the stranger who came seeking God. This is one of the tragedies that the people of Israel have managed to perpetuate throughout their history. The message that they were to be a light to the nation seemed to consistently get lost in the shuffle even though it had always been there in the Old Testament. What they couldn't seem to get their heads around was the truth that the covenant community also existed for the sake of its non-members. This is what Jesus didn't see when he entered the courtyard. A concern for those who had not yet come to worship the true God. And this is what I fear Jesus would find among many of God's people today if he were to suddenly burst in upon the scene. I read a book one time called In Search of the Unchurched. Basically, it is a book which is examining the question of why people often don't join particular congregations. The author of this book claims that in perhaps 80% of all Protestant congregations, the prevailing attitude is that the church exists in the main for the sake of its members And the author says that the fascinating thing is that when you go and talk to people in these churches, you find that the perception of the church regulars is that they are open and friendly and welcoming to outsiders, but that is often not what the visitors are saying. And surveys like these indicate that while churches often want to be open and oriented at outsiders, the reality is that the individual members are not actually doing things or willing to do things to make the church a place that is oriented that way. They're not willing to create a space, a court for the Gentiles within their own walls. You see this attitude sometimes reflected in the comments that people make when the church starts to push for changes to make itself more accessible 
to its non-members, to lost people, to unchurched people. Some churches will do things like uh, they'll try to wear name tags. And you'll get a complaint, I don't like to wear a name tag. I feel silly, it puts a hole in my shirt. Besides, I know everybody anyway. Where's the concern for the visitor? I don't want our church to get too big. Big churches are so impersonal, you can't get to know everybody. It won't feel like a family anymore. Where's the concern for the unchurched people in that kind of perspective? I don't think we should start a second service that's going to split the church. Where is the concern for the unchurched people in that kind of perspective? Examples could be multiplied endlessly. People make these kind of statements in churches all the time. And I ask you, where is the concern for the stranger? Rather than taking that sort of attitude and becoming more and more insular, churches today need to go the other direction and work hard to reclaim the court of the Gentiles. Activities that have lost their evangelistic edge need to be revamped so that a space is created for outsiders to come and see what God's about. Practices that unnecessarily exclude and marginalize the stranger need to be handled in a different way. Words that are meaningless to the non-Christian need to be replaced with new ones or else the old ones need to be at least explained so that access is encouraged and not discouraged. Our own attitudes need to be reflected on and prayed about and adjusted. We need to remind ourselves that, yes, the church exists for its members, but it also exists for the sake of its non-members. When you show up in this place on Sunday morning, you need to remind yourself of this. Make an effort to welcome the stranger, to create a space in your life and your schedule and your social calendar and your wallet. to be hospitable to the stranger. And why do we do these things? Is it because it's a good technique for church growth? No. It's because God's purpose from the very beginning was that God's people would exist to be a blessing to the nations, to those who had not yet come to worship. It's because as we do this, God may use us to draw persons to himself, and as a result, the honor of God will be increased because there will now at least be one more voice added to the chorus of praise. This is the attitude that was missing when Jesus entered the temple. This was the perspective that had been lost. And certainly it made Jesus angry, but there's at least one other thing, I think, that would have angered Jesus. And it was this. It's the irony of the whole thing. The absolute irony of it. Think about it. Here he was... The Son of God, God's Messiah, setting himself up on the only place where the Son of God should go, in the place of God's presence, the temple. And just as the ark was brought into the temple of God and the glory of God filled the temple, so too now has the glory of God filled the temple. Again, not with a wooden box, not with a cloud, but with Jesus himself, God in human flesh. That glory is now filling the temple because he's there. And just as bringing the ark into the temple in Solomon's day interrupted the operations of the temple, so too does Jesus' arrival effectively put a halt to the operations in the temple. 
And all along, you see, Jesus has been sending signals to his people. This, he's been sending this signal to them the whole time. To people who are troubled, he, said, he doesn't say to them, take your troubles to the temple, talk to one of the priests. He doesn't say that. He says, come to me, cast your concerns on me. To those who were sick and needed healing, he didn't say, go to the temple and present a gift offering and pray that perhaps he might be merciful to you. No, he healed them and said things like, get up, take your mat and go home. To those who came to him feeling the weight of their sin, he didn't say, go to the temple, sacrifice two lambs and call me in the morning. No, he said, your sins are forgiven. You see, what he's been doing all throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus has been drawing attention away from the temple and to himself. Why? Because everything that the temple was for the people of God, Jesus is saying, now can be found in him. They no longer needed the temple. To symbolize the presence of God. They had the real thing right there in front of them. They no longer needed to go through a priest to gain access to God. They could talk to him directly. They no longer needed a temple ritual to deal with sin. Jesus forgave their sins and then he would deal with them finally and forever on the cross. Do you see it? Everything that the temple was for the people of God, Jesus now is for his people only infinitely better. So when Jesus comes storming into the temple, throwing people out on their ear, it's not just spring cleaning that he's doing. He's not just taking out the garbage. This is a full corporate takeover. He hasn't come to fix and restore the temple. He has come to be the temple, to replace the temple, to surpass the temple. The message Jesus sends as he comes to this temple basically is this town ain't big enough for the two of us. Which is why it is so significant that his actions not only corrected a problem, getting the thieves out of the temple, but it also created a situation where the normal operations of the temple are for the time being suspended. You know, it's deeply significant that the other sacrifices are removed from the temple and the place is completely cleared out, right? Nothing left. And after the people are thrown out and after the sacrificial animals are frightened off, what is left in the temple? One Lamb is left. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the only one left in the temple. The final sacrifice, the sufficient sacrifice, is in the place where it needs to be. And so from that point of time on, until the time of his crucifixion, he sets up shop within the temple... He makes it his own personal headquarters. He spends the days teaching people, drawing all attention to himself, making himself the central most focal point of the entire structure. Jesus, the ultimate temple of God, the ultimate meeting place of God and man, the ultimate demonstration of God's presence amongst his people, Jesus is taking over. And that's why the leaders of the people wanted him dead. Because they didn't know what to do with Jesus. They didn't know God. They didn't want God. They wanted the shadow. They wanted the symbol. They wanted the rituals. They wanted the old temple, not the new one. They didn't want the real thing. They wanted Jesus out of the way so they could get back to the business of religion. And God would actually use their hatred to accomplish His purposes. But not just yet. And so Jesus was distressed in the temple that day, not just because people were using God as a means to an end, not just because foreigners were being excluded from the temple, but also, and perhaps mostly, because here was the Son of God right in their midst, and they were just going on like it's just another day, 
business as usual. I think these verses have already had a great deal to say to us about the mission and ministry of the church, so let me just close with three very brief comments. For starters, and as David Peterson points out, one of the most practical consequences of this is the need to ensure that Christian teaching and preaching centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' own emphasis upon himself as as the temple of God, as the meeting place of God and man, is the model for how we ought to go about doing the work of the gospel. Certainly there are many different approaches one might take in ministering to people. You might start in all kinds of ways, but however we start and wherever we start, however we establish a point of contact with people, we have to end up with Jesus and the cross. We have to place before people the reality that Jesus is the place where you find forgiveness for sin. Christian teaching in which the cross cannot be found does not deserve to be called by that name. Approaches to evangelism that do not center upon the person and work of Christ, but upon the needs and desires of the individual are sub-Christian. Strategies of ministry that are only about social justice or the development of one's spirituality or the cultivation of a certain kind of spiritual experience, strategies like that are missing the plot and giving pride of place to things which Jesus himself did not sanction. These verses have a great deal to say about our attitude and perspective also toward lost people, about our need to reclaim and maintain the court of the Gentiles in our own churches and to let that sort of thinking infiltrate everything that we do or say or plan. We have a lot of questions we need to ask ourselves whenever we do anything, but one of the questions we've got to keep asking ourselves is, what does this have to do with the gospel? If you're at a planning event, you're at a committee, or you're thinking about the future, or you want to do X, Y, Z, the question you've got to ask is, what does this have to do with the gospel? How will this advance the church in its role as a light to the nations? If we can't answer the question, or if we don't have a good answer for the question, we shouldn't do it. One final implication of all this for missions is what this passage says to the rest of the world to whom we have been sent. As unpopular as this truth may be, Jesus is the temple of God. He is the place, the only place where God and humanity can meet. Just as in Solomon's prayer where it was the expectation that foreigners would come to the temple in Israel and bow down to the worship, the God of Israel. So it's true that Jesus is now the focal point for the worship of God. For every person on the face of the earth. There's no other name given by which people might be saved. No one can come to the Father except through Jesus. Jesus said that himself. If you have a complaint with that, you need to take it up with him. He is the place. He is the face of God. And his house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Let's pray. Father, as you well know, we're not uh, 
I'm not doing a groundbreaking today. But we will be soon, by your mercy. And as we do, Father, as we think about moving into this new place, establishing something semi-permanent for us, a base of operations, putting up this building that will be a great tool, a great resource. Would you please help us do that with a changed and changing perspective within our individual hearts? Would you make us a people who whose hearts are soft toward those who are not part of this fellowship yet, toward people who are probably in our life already, that we could open our mouths and say the words if we would. We could show the gospel and speak the gospel Father, as we move to this new location, would you be changing us that we would grow in that particular area, in that particular way, with a real concern to not exclude those who are not part of it, but to reach out to those who are not part of this community, those who have not yet bowed the knee to you, not yet recognized their need of you, not yet understood the grace and mercy that are on offer in the gospel. Father, would you use us and would that become a new and growing pattern uh, for us as a church? Would that be a thing that becomes a distinctive about us more and more over time? Father, would you please do that for your sake, for your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We'll now take up an offering for those who would like to support the work of this church and or ministries through this church.